Nothing, ontological oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. What makes us human? While humans can certainly be defined strictly in biological terms, most of us intuitively find that definition to be lacking a key component. What that key component is perceived to be may vary among people depending on their philosophical, psychological, or religious views, but in a broad stroke, we can say it is consciousness. Awareness, the soul, foresight, all of these characteristics that we associate with being human stem from being conscious. But are they real or illusory? And if they are real, is it possible that some of these quote-unquote human characteristics are shared by non-humans? What do the mysteries of consciousness tell us about ourselves, and can they ever even be answered? All right, consciousness is one that we've we've referred to a lot over the different podcasts. It's something that uh, really connects to all the different things that we've talked about, and um, it's it's really hard to um, it's really hard to pin down. You know, so let's just start right out. Is is consciousness just awareness or is it more than awareness in in preparing for the episode you know i I was looking at some dictionary definitions and it's funny how little agreement there is there is very little among the the different dictionary definitions which is pretty unusual most of the time you if you cross-reference a bunch of different dictionaries they'll give you at least something that's in the ballpark of being similar consciousness is not one of those it is not one of those and so you might as well just dive into the, the 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 newest stuff and work backwards. So there's a thing called the hard problem, and you've probably read about this. Uh, uh, David Chalmers, this, uh, in the n- mid-90s, first arrived at this. So, so the hard problem is trying to resolve what Descartes essentially launched, which was the idea of the mind-body duality. Um, but... But the hard problem is that we don't know how, if not why, but that we know what something is like. And that's really what he talked about. So uh, to be aware is to know that there are things. To be conscious is to say that this is what something is like. Right. And so that's that's where the the definitions get a little screwy. Some of the, the dictionary definitions just relate it to awareness. It's being aware. And really, if that's the the um the take that you have, that's a pretty mechanistic view. You know, and it's yes, it's a materialist view. Right. And and then it's kind of a pretty easy jump to say that animals have consciousness, or is it some of these other you know, possibly even artificial intelligence might have consciousness because they might be aware animals are obviously aware of things you know but um 
yeah, going beyond that, you know, coming into uh, that, some of the other definitions were, like you were saying, what it means to be like something or what it means to have something yes. or these different. Yes. And, and that gets into the etymology of the language, really. If you go back to the Latin, you have, because consciousness, if you break down, con is together and then shias is to know, to know, to know yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which which also implies a do uh, the, the the Latin itself works at the multiple layers of us. So we talked about this with identity. Mm-hmm. I know what I am thinking. Oh wait, I know myself. There's I, and there's myself. And then there's my body. What is my body doing? Why is my body moving that way? Well, then I'm implying that there's an I. That you don't understand. <laughs> and and, and then, then there's that. So even our language, going, going back to the Latin roots, is problematic. <laughs> right, yeah. And that's, and that's the big problem with consciousness is, is the duality. Um, but yeah, the, the language is the really interesting part about it. And honestly, that's probably one of the big reasons that consciousness is so mysterious to us. The episode we just did before this was language. And we yeah. talked about how... Um, intimately integrated languages with philosophy and and all of human thinking and so if you don't have the language to adequately describe what consciousness is then you know consciousness is going to inherently be a mysterious thing and i saw a quote that i liked which is that consciousness is at once the most familiar and most mysterious thing that humans encounter and i think it's right on it is right on we think we know we have that illusion of explanatory depth well, I know what it means to be conscious. Tell me. Yeah. So <laughs> what does it mean to be conscious? Well, and you said mysterious. Uh, one of the it's like a science fictional name because it was used that way in a number of different pieces of work. But there's actually a branch of of philosophy having to do with consciousness called the Mysterians, hmm. and and the Mysterians say that we can never know. They're 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 adamant. They're pretty resolute about this. Uh, what is it? They, McGinn is 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 the, uh, one of the leaders of that. And this again was in the nineties, and so uh, they believe that the hard problem can never be solved because of our own cognitive limitations, which are anchored in language. Right. We're never going to be able to know. Well, nobody likes to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it just goes against. Being human, we always want to find the answers. But you know, it it makes you wonder if there is a sort of um, cosmic microwave background of lingual uh, aptitude that we have, where we cannot see beyond that. We cannot find those. Uh, oh, words. you've just given me joy for the entire Saturday. <laughs> cosmic microwave background of lingual aptitude. That's <laughs> that's that's a wonderful mouthful. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I know now, am I conscious? Do I know what you mean by that? Those are two different questions. Am I conscious? Am I aware that you said something? Yes. Am I conscious? I am gripping the concept that you put out. So am I aware that you said something? But I'm aware that somebody using a Papiamento from Carousel, I'm aware they're saying something. Mm. 
I don't have that language. Uh, so in that sense, there's an awareness, but consciousness is all but more than that. Yeah, and that brings up an interesting question about consciousness. So we talked about the Latin root, which you know essentially means knowing together. And then there is another Latin word that means sharing information with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that really demonstrates the kind of two concepts. And, and it gets us into that, that next idea, which is, you know, it like you're saying, you and I essentially shared what may be to some of our listeners an inside joke about a cosmic microwave background and, uh, you know, lack of language. So I'm sure some will know, will get the reference and some people might not. So those of us that do get it, we are conscious of the joke, whereas the other people are, are not. And that's one sort of definition. But, um, you know, another definition, the one that's most commonly thought of is that idea of knowing yourself. You have a stream of consciousness. You have things that are in your mind um, that are at the forefront. And you have things that you know that are not currently being thought of. So where does that, how does that work out? Can we come to a, a definition of what consciousness means? Um, do those two things interact at all? That those two things. Well, current the current discussion right now is about those two things: about the the inward consciousness and the outward consciousness. And this becomes uh, feisty for the philosophers who are wrestling with the concepts in the larger contexts of politics and theology and 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 because if if i were to say for instance that i have an inward awareness of my conscious i have a consciousness of the inward or i am consciously aware of what's going on inside of me oh somebody could challenge to say no you don't know every single thing that's going on inside of you well no i don't because there are millions of activities going on at once and 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 i'm not going back to another podcast there are millions of life forms inside of me that right. I have no, no uh, knowledge of at all or a connection with. But I'm aware that I'm having thoughts. I'm aware of myself forming words. Mm. Uh, try picturing that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, we, but we know mm-hmm. that, that we're doing it or, or we think that we know that we are. But if I am to say that I have inward consciousness, but I don't exhibit any outward consciousness. That's when we get into the highly difficult ethics of life support. Uh, some people uh, cling to, or at, at for all kinds of good, understandable reasons, but the idea that someone may be very much functioning even though outwardly we see nothing going on. Uh, the materialists would say, well, let's not be so sure of that because we can see, we can do MRIs, we can do scans. We can see if there's any higher level activity going on or if it's just maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you divide consciousness into two layers like that, it invites more complexity. Yeah, and there's that just brings up so many different things that I've been reading about recently that that kind of tie into that. But um, you know, one of them was you know, like you were just saying, 
so I, you and I tend to both shy away a little bit from the mechanistic view of humans. Like we don't like to think of ourselves as meat machines, but at the same time, you know, philosophy, we're going to objectively review what is known and then draw inferences about this sort of thing. So it's easy to say, um, you know, I think that we'd all like to say nobody knows me better than I know myself. Like it's not possible, right? Consciousness, consciousness is originating with me so obviously i'm the one who knows myself the best but hypothetically let's say that um you were observed your whole life by a camera that was attached to some kind of ai computer that you know watches you know your eye movements and your heart rate and your actions and interprets what what the thought processes are behind them and the longer you live the better it gets at doing these sort of things and whatnot well, it's not really all that hard to imagine getting to a point where you would be asked, you know, how do you think you'll react in this sort of situation? And you say, this is the way I would react. And the AI computer would say, no, you're going to do this. <laughs> and in, and if, if the actual situation happened, you would definitely do that because we do that all the time. I can think of plenty of scenarios where somebody would ask me, yeah, what would you do in this situation? I'd say, yeah, I'd do this. But honestly, that's that's an idealized me. I would that's what I would like to do in that situation. But most more than likely, I would act a different way. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. so so that brings up an, a kind of interesting thing where, OK, so consciousness, you know, we're, we're assuming that it originates inside our heads and we're assuming that it's this internal um, sort of thing and that it it's kind of who we are. But really. Our, our empirical actions don't necessarily reflect how we how we would act and then you get into what you mentioned you know we have millions of other life forms that make us up and there was an article that i was just reading about how um fixing your gut microbiome can actually um alleviate symptoms of anxiety and depression yeah. things that seem completely unrelated to gut biome you know but these millions of creatures living inside you can actually influence your conscious thought you know or um another one i was just reading about they were doing a study on um on brain death essentially and what they're finding is that a lot of people who after they they're having a really hard time defining death because recently they've come across an issue where they've using fMRI and stuff. They've found a, a succession of brain waves or even, you know, very low Delta wave sort of things. But people who have come back from these States claim that they were conscious and they've presented details of scenarios that were happening around them when they had no way of um, sensing those things happening biologically mm -hmm. all of these examples that i just brought up raise the issue is consciousness an internal thing or is there an external component to consciousness that sounds very mystical you know it sounds like no that's not possible that's not a scientific thing but you know we come back to the original origin of the language knowing something together knowing something outside of you so is consciousness is there an external component to consciousness or is it all an internal thing? Well, if <clears throat> the materialists uh, talk about uh, something that, well, uh, Gilbert Ryle, he was, again, a person in the late 80s and 90s who was talking uh, 
he's the one I believe who originated the phrase uh, "the ghost of the machine." He was talking about Descartes. You know, the difficulties with Descartes is if you've got something that's material and something that's completely immaterial, how does one affect the other? And so there were then in between stages where the philosophers and scientists, uh, so-called at the time, but philosophers and working on, well, is there an in-between state? How might something that's seemingly immaterial still have some material properties? And we've gone, you know, way past that now. The, the, the materialists say, nope, it's just all substance. It's all chemicals. It's all, and, and so... Well, what was the question you were asking? Because I just, I just tripped out. <laughs> I was sliding right off the path into the woods. No, no, I think that you're, you're still on track. Essentially, it's trying to, um, you know, so we've, we've seen how, um, you know, there people can experience or, you know, or can be conscious of something when they don't have the brain waves saying that they can perceive yeah. something sensory or we have you know, microbiotic or organisms that actually influence our conscious thoughts. So is consciousness some sort of unified internal mechanism that lives inside this skull, or is it something outside of that that all comes together? Well, if we, go, if we go to our friend Jung, who talks about the collective unconscious, well, if there's a collective unconscious, it's not so hard to think of as that, well, maybe there's a collective consciousness too. Uh, you know, I, d I don't know of any way that one could measure that, but I'm not a, an extremely measure-oriented kind of person. But I think it surely is possible to think about consciousness beyond just being packed into ourselves, because even you think of literary terms or psychological terms like zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the time. So what is the zeitgeist of the 20th century? And people try to describe it in various ways, but it's an attempt to say, well, what... What is the larger character of this whole thing? <clears throat> and if we say, well, generally the people who feel thus and so in a certain nation or country, here's the overall feeling. Well, then we're sort of implying that we all have a consciousness of something. Or we, or we ask somebody, did you say that? Did you see that? I saw that. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that too. Well, th is the fact that we all saw something? more of a consciousness than, our, than this ourselves. Yeah, and there's an interesting psychological um, phenomenon that happens there. Um, who was oh, the United Nations leader who he had been imprisoned for years and people you know, when he, when he got out of prison every, everybody almost everybody thought he had died. You're not talking about M Mandela. Yes, the Mandela effect. So in psychology, it's called the Mandela effect. Essentially, this guy was in prison. He was sort of out of out of sight and out of mind for several years. And then when he when he you know what came out of prison, there was this huge um, kind of public you know shock because a large there's almost this public consciousness that had assumed that he had he had died at some point. Or another one, um, more pop culture oriented one is. Luke, I am your father. That's a line that was never spoken, but that's the way everybody remembers it, you know? And so in those sorts of things kind of do point to maybe a collective consciousness among people, something that influence, whether it's individual consciousness is building 
a certain thing or how whatever right. it is. Right. And it, and it, and if so, it is an ex, it's extraordinarily inaccurate, mm-hmm. right? Because most of what we think we remember is somewhat flawed, right? Uh, so when I, so if there's a collective consciousness, and we're out in the middle of a lake, and a lightning bolt strikes the water. Where this is coming from, but see that I don't. I'm a, I've seen the image in my head. I've got a consciousness of this image. Boom! Splash! All right. So, if we're out on the lake in various little boats and none of us gets hit, and we say, "Did you see that?" Yes, there were three bolts. No, it was a blue, straight as an arrow bolt into the water. No, I saw a bunch of pink and orange crackling energy, and it hit right over there, just about where you were. Well, we all consciously know together we saw something. Mm. We share the experience that we saw. So we confirm with each other. So consciousness, I think, is partly confirmation. Yeah. And and I think that you're right. It's easier to think of examples of it not working than examples of it working. Like, I'm sure that the examples of it working are probably more widespread. We can probably more agree on things that we all consciously infer than things that we don't. But the things that we don't, really sets in stark contrast the fact that it does exist and it doesn't always work you know in in the military that's the the fog of war you know you get attacked and then they do an after action report and they ask you so what happened oh there's three guys wearing white there were six guys wearing blue they had small arms fire no they were shooting mortars you know it never agrees or uh you know ufo encounters that's another one you know people claim to see these things and to the best of our knowledge a lot of them can be explained other ways so they saw something they were they were aware of something but what it actually was well then consciousness with creativity with intuitive uh, with intuitive drills going into the into the unconscious to pull up these imaginative uh, embellishments. Not because we're trying to embellish necessarily, but we are storytelling creatures, and we've talked about that before, too. So if an officer of the law does the same thing as you're talking about with the military, it says, what what happened in this accident? Well, this happened, that happened. No, which car was it? What car? Well, he hit him first. What? No, I was at this angle, and I saw the car hit. Mm-hmm. Something happened, right. <laughs> and the, and the poor officer, she or or he has to figure out. <laughs> right, and so, so consciousness is consciousness the act of taking those sensory perceptions and making meaning out of them. I think so. I think a lot of people would say I'm full of beans, but I think so. Because to me, there is a definite difference between awareness and consciousness. I, I'm aware that my, my toe is moving right now. I'm aware that I'm twisting in my seat. If I stop for a second and realize I'm doing that, I command myself to stop. But there's a why in that. And the why is that's frivolous activity that could uh, detract from the conversation uh, and so there's a consciousness of how one should be or how one has been taught to be or how one has trained oneself to be in a, in a public or private circumstance. And that's more than awareness. Mm. But, I, but I think people would say I'm full of beans on that. I th- I, but I, I think we do have 
that constructive, that's necessarily constructive. And that reminds me of another interesting study that they ran was, was um, conscious thought and its influence on performance. And um, they were, they were looking at, I forget what instrument it was because I don't, I don't play classical instruments, but it was, I think it was a cello maybe. And it was a guy that was playing, he, you know, he was known for being able to play this very hard classical piece on the cello. And so, um, you know, he'd, they asked him to play it and he played it. And then they asked him, you know, well, how do you do it? And then he was, he what's it me. like? What's it like to be able to play this way? Right. And he wasn't able to reproduce it. Or there's a, there's an old um, poem that I like. I think it's from like the 1500s. It talks about, you know, a, a caterpillar walking or a centipede. And then, you know, a spider asks him or, you know, how do you how do you keep track of all those legs and which one should walk after which? And says, well, I have no problem doing it as long as I don't think about it. But if I do think about it, I just lay in the ditch and can't move. You know? <laughs> as the same thing, I, I've I've thought about it because, you know, I play some musical instruments and I've done some different things. There's a point when you first are learning a skill when conscious thought is very important. You know, honing and tuning, you know, what should I be doing right now? Is this improving my performance? Is it detracting? How can I improve it? There's a constructive process. But then somewhere you need to hand off conscious control to unconscious processes in order to effectively um, begin to um let let the repetitive things take motion and focus your consciousness on higher order tasks and if you consciously go back to those lower order tasks it interferes with your performance right there's a thing called epiphenomenalism did you read about that at all no i don't think so so uh, it's one of the many views on consciousness and it essentially says that there are um there are events in our mind. There are mental events. Um, and those events are caused by brain events. But the mental events don't then go on to cause something else. So the brain says, pick up the guitar. The brain says, uh, here's the A, here's the E, and so on. Because you're reading a book, you're looking at it, you're practicing, you have a teacher, whatever, and so you're practicing that. But at some point, as you say, that becomes almost subroutine, uh, or for computer terms, or perhaps unconscious or semi-conscious, because it's going into the background. The mechanics of it are going in the background because something deeper is happening. Yeah, but that something deeper is happening is not going to cause something else. The epiphenomenalist would say it's 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 not a cause of something else. It's just an is. It exists for itself. And you've talked about playing. You know, you you, you create things. Sometimes you put them out there. Sometimes you don't. But the joy of the creative thing is enough in itself. And I certainly feel that way about art. Uh, and so there's a consciousness of craft. Is a consciousness of the approaches to craft. But then we go a step further. So that we're not necessarily aware of how well we're even doing. Mm. We're so caught up in the moment 
we were talking about yoga this morning before we started, right? We're, you're so in the moment that you trust what you're doing. I was talking to my art teacher uh, the other day, had another lesson, and, <clears throat> and she was encouraging me about a number of things that I've, I was talking about the whole process of making this sculpture, sculpted piece, three-dimensional piece that I'd done from found objects. But then the next step was to work with uh, uh, various paint programs and adding things and shaping and changing the light. And so I had the piece, the original piece that I sent, which she, she found uh, art as art in itself. But then there's this other piece. And I said, you know, I didn't even, I'm looking back at it and I see this has happened, this has happened. And now I can remember thinking about that, but I didn't, wasn't thinking about it at the time. But look, there's this thing. How did that happen? It showed up. Um, I may have been telling myself I remembered trying to do that, but part of it was just utter creativity. Now there may be a higher order consciousness going on in that. You may you you you're not thinking about which am I writing an A an A flat B flat what minor whatever. You may start with that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're thinking about that the whole way through. Yeah, that's definitely the experience that I've had with artistic endeavors is knowing the theory, you know, knowing music theory or knowing, you know, the theory behind brush strokes and lighting and that sort of things is very important to creating aesthetically pleasing work. But you really cannot think about those things when you are creating art. It's very interesting because to... In my experience, it ruins the whole thing. Forget what you're you know, doing and just do it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I need to think about those things before I'm doing it. I need yeah. to internalize the concepts. I need to, you know, understand what it means. But when I'm actually creating art, if I'm thinking about those things, it completely stifles the entire thing. So now I'm going to ask you as an artist, uh, as a musician, what, this is going to be an odd question, but do you want it to be dualistic or do you want it to be materialistic? Do you want to think that there is something more than the machine mastering the instrument and then doing something fresh with it, all all explained by the physical stuff? Or do you not just want to believe, do you, do you have a sense of, which, you know, our senses may be mistaken, but you have a sense that there's more to it than that? You know, I'll tell you, I, I don't know, you know, and, and I think that I'm, I'm a very agnostic kind of person where it's, if I don't know, and there's no way of me finding out, yeah. I tend to just admit it and and move on to something that I have a better chance of understanding. But this is the way I've always thought about it is it's kind of a cat and mouse game between the materialistic and the dualistic. I like to think that there's a dualism. I like to think that there's something outside of it that's going on. But in the back of the head, you know, the logical part of me thinks, well, no, it's all materialistic. So then I'm trying to find ways to out outsmart it or to outdo it to try to make it seem like it is realistic. And I think that uh, the latest study I sent you actually kind of cor corroborates that sort of thing where they took the monkeys and they, they flashed certain things at the neurons. And what they found was that the neurons originally start out this weird thing, but the more they, um, the more they exposure they gave it, the more closely it got to being something real. And so I guess the way that I like to think of it is is a lot like that. You know, 
So the more seasoned of a musician I become or a songwriter or whatever, the more likely I am to admit that there is no dualism. You know, no, I've just I've mastered the craft. So now I'm creating things that even if it sounds a bit esoteric, really, I'm just using this sort of, you know, um, rare or, you know, unusual music theory. So as a result, what I do is as soon as I start to think that I I'll go in a, a totally different direction or, you know, and that's the conscious aspect of it. when I'm not playing, I'll think, you know, I'm going to try to to go in a different direction, something that doesn't have a theory sort of thing as far as I'm concerned. But unconsciously, what I do is you just surrender to the dualism, which is what I was saying before. When I sit down to paint. I forget everything I've learned about brush strokes. When I sit down to write music, I forget everything I've learned about theory. And instead, I just start playing things. And when something sounds good or sounds the way that I want it to, I'll go with it. You know, and lots of times that leads you in the right direction because if I play a G, D, E minor C, my ear intuitively says, no, that's that's every single song. I don't want to hear that. You know, that's so bland, so lame. I don't want to do that. But, you know, if I go from, a, you know, some chord to, you know, a diminished thing, it goes, oh, well, I don't like the sound of that, so I'm not going to do that. And, you know, if you just trust, if, if I just trust myself, I will wind my way into a spot where I'm not purely following these mechanistic songwriting progressions, but I'm also not writing avant-garde distonal things you know i've I, and then and then i've stumbled upon something that says you know what this i feel like this reflects this is a a musical mirror of how of myself you know and then i feel like the duality actually exists and then five minutes later i will explain to myself no mechanistically you just did this thing and then the whole process starts over again you know so so the debate is important i see that I, I think that's you've gotten where i very elegantly, where I was thinking you might get, and, and inwardly probably hoping, because I feel very similarly about. And you mentioned that before. It, you know, we if we didn't have the debate, if we weren't conscious sometimes of the debate, we might not push ourselves further. Mm. So it it could be that the Mysterians, in saying we don't have. We will never know. Uh, there's, there's not necessarily great sadness in that. <laughs> yeah. Now you got me thinking about something else. I'm going to toss this in, and you can say, "Nope, we're not going there." Uh, <laughs> but, but two things. Both of them have to do with the sacred text, which you know I've said many times. I, I take as stories. These are not uh, brutally denotative, factual things for me. They are stories that we have told. And they're deeply important stories to people. But one story. So uh, Jesus uh, hears at a distance that his friend Lazarus has died. He 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 tries to get back or is sick. He gets back and he's found that he's it's, it's all done. He can't conscien the the loss of that friend who we hear virtually nothing about anywhere else because of the, the incomplete nature of text. If, if 
all this cluster of things that are associated with the belief system are so to bring a friend back physically who will then experience death again at some point is illogical. It's also perhaps less than kind. But we see this happening storytelling all the time. People are dead, but then they're brought back. Oh, we didn't lose them. Well, you know, it, now I'm not associating Avengers Endgame with <laughs> necessarily sacred texts exactly, but it's still a story. But the point is, if consciousness and things related, soul and so on, are not of the body, then why would it be so desperately important to bring the body back? Right. And then the second one is the 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 the, the apocalyptic vision of the, the the four horsemen and the revel you know, the, the the end times, which is variously associated with people, uh, different traditions and sects and so on. But in some interpretations, physical bodies are wrenched from the earth and carried into the sky. Now, to me, that is a narrative hint that it is all in the machine because why in the world would the physical be any more important if the soul was entirely separate right yeah that's a that's a, an interesting sort of look at it and i think that what it what it highlights this whole thing we've been talking about is that the struggle is really the important aspect of it. It's the thing that we um, both are constantly shying away from. And yet the thing that makes things worth, worth doing, you know, and then who wants to read a story where it's just, it's just, you know, sunshine and rainbows all the way through it. No, you, there has to be, you know, conflict. There has to be these things. And that's true of any art form. It's true of, of life, of all these different things. And, you know, honestly, that's, it's part of consciousness. If you look at um, psychological or educational theory, the way that you learn things, the way you understand things is by coming across a concept that is outside your zone of proximal development. You have, you come across an idea and you don't understand it. And then that initiates something in you that desires that understanding. And then through, um, you know, modeling by, a teacher or you know through curiosity and through discovering concepts you come to understand something and you you bring that into yourself but that's not that's not the end of it because then there's always going to be something else there's always going to be you know conflict and resolution conflict and resolution and that's that's growth you know and that's when it comes down to it, humans are machines at least at the very least that are um inspired to grow and live through conflict and and all of life seems to mirror that trend now is it just machine are we just machines or is there something more that's up for debate but i think that you know the conflict and the growth is is an important aspect of it um so going through all of this let's talk about can is can self-consciousness be definable can we do we have the language to to you know, really, all of the things that we've been talking about so far, is there any way of summing up what what this is? We have the language to attempt it. 
So to to sum up, we're saying basically there are two models. Uh, wispy something or other in package, <laughs> which is the duality uh, that Descartes was talking about. Uh, Leibniz went a step further. Uh, Leibniz was talking about things called monads, which are mental uh, states uh, of a kind that still have material. But he was saying, let's, let's not be so sure because because Descartes was saying that you can examine any thought. You can know every one of your thoughts. You can examine those things. We we pretty much have thrown that way away, but Leibniz was going to that. So you've got the, the wispy thing in the package, or you've got just the package, an extraordinary creature, machine, whatever it is. We, we can put those into... This is the hard problem that Chalmers was talking about. We can explain very well with scientific Latin-based language how it works more now than ever down to those millions of life forms in the gut we can explain all of that how how it works mechanistically we still don't know what it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> to me it, par it parallels the idea of the arising of life you know like there's still that that idea that living things can't come from non-living things and the the more science that we look at, the more we start to think, well, living things must have arisen from non-living things, but we still can't prove how it happened. And it's sort of the same thing. You know, this idea of consciousness and, you know, well, kind of it can't just be, you know, you know, mechanistic. These these ethereal things couldn't have come from these mechanistic things, but at some point they must have, right? Well, some point they must have. And because we don't know exactly chapter and verse how it all works yet, but we are much better at articulating the how than the... Mm. Than the We're coming up against the, the cosmic microwave background of lingual <laughs> aptitude. <laughs> um, so yes. let's talk about that. So can consciousness be... One of, the, one of the big definitions of consciousness I've came across of is um, sub subjectivity. Consciousness is subjectivity so if that's true if that's part of the definition is there any objective way of describing it can we describe in objective terms can we say these are aspects of consciousness yes we can say that can we prove it but no <laughs> no and so that's we can say it but we can't absolutely know it now we're getting back to the to the epistemological we can say there's a lawnmower running outside the studio if your ears are really good you might even say well i think it's off to the west somewhere and maybe if your ears are really good you might even be able to tell what kind of engine it is it's a two-stroke push mower briggs and strat you know what the lawnmower is. <laughs> okay, James Bond. That was, no, but, but it was a gas. But what I'm saying is, so the, the awareness becomes the consciousness. The consciousness, consciousness focused can apply details of objectivity to a subject. But you don't necessarily know absolutely Unless there was something going on, like you knew that your wife had gone out, you had a bracelet strat and more, that that was your yard back there because you just happened to know where it is. All of this, in the, if you had all that knowledge, then you could do a nice parlor trick, right? But 
what I'm saying is that it is subjective in the sense of if we don't aren't absolutely certain, uh, you know, how dark is it outside right now? Is it gloomy? Is it is it grim? Is it a uh, little a uh, little stormy? Is it looming? And we have all these wonderful poetic, and each word means something a little bit different subjectively to apply to the day. And then that really, I mean, it comes back to that question, can we ever know this stuff? Are we, is it just shadows on a cave wall, all of it, you know, because there's a good chance that even if I knew my wife was going out to mow the lawn with our lawnmower, there's a chance maybe she got distracted and was talking to our neighbor and maybe our new neighbor had the exact same lawnmower and was mowing right on the edge of our property. And so I'm assuming, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So not you know that comes back to the problem of knowledge, which we've covered before. Mm-hmm. So I guess you know, and and I think that the example we we talked about um, language with with the bass guitar was a good one. You know, you'd say depending on your your um, experience with musical instruments, some people might just say it's a guitar, whereas some people might be able to to you know distinguish that it's a bass, and other people would be able to distinguish what kind it is. You know. Is it's a jazz bass and it's this and that and you can get into levels of detail, um, but as far as objectively being able to define what something is as opposed to the characteristics of what make it up, that's that's always going to be murky territory. It seems you mysterious you yes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so non-human consciousness. So we've we've talked about it a little bit with animals at the beginning of this. The difference between awareness and consciousness. Awareness is having a perception of other things. Consciousness is something a little bit more than that. Decision making, perhaps? Right. Maybe. Um, or like we were saying, taking um, sensations and... M- Interpreting them. Interpreting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you think that there are animals that have that capacity to some extent or another? Yes, they do. And because I've read a lot of Pete Singer, I, I, I find his philosophical work quite compelling. But I, I think even if I, I didn't, if, if enough of us grew up around animals, we we see things. And we can't stop ourselves from applying anthropology anthropomorphic tendencies i mean we 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 anthropomorphize our animals all the time my cat says this my cat has this person but that's not to say the cat doesn't have a personality it does all cats do not behave the same way they do not look at you the same way they don't measurably how their 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 pupils dilate and all that kind of thing i suppose you could do but we're still interpretive Uh, but there's a there's a there's a great difficulty in all of this. But you're talking about the animal stuff, so we'll, we'll go to that. There is an an almost inextricable uh, politicization uh, that and and a clash with or a collision with uh, elements of belief. We know that people say, no matter how many facts you show me, I don't believe it. Right. So there's not a consciousness of facts or a rejection of facts just because I don't want to believe it. All right. Well, this this happens with animal. I mean, if you really, if you, you if the, a person says, 
my cat has a personality, my dog has a personality, but I won't say my cow has a personality. Well, then why do you give the cows a different name? Just give them numbers and designate them. Yeah, but but she doesn't behave the same way as she does. Oh, so now we're talking about, and then of course kids get attached to him in some part. But but it's okay to sacrifice that consciousness because I got to eat. You know, it gets really dicey if you start to say things are conscious. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- then you have to start questioning your own behavior toward that which you find conscious. Right, and. My wife, when she was a kid, they had a cow and they named him Dinner because they knew if they named him something else, he would never become Dinner, you know. So, and that's a that's a good example of that. Um, but yeah, and and this is this ref comes back to the opening monologue piece that I had, which is I opened up with what makes us human, yeah. and we like to think that consciousness makes us human, but yeah, the deeply do. unsettling truth is more than likely that very much like everything else. There is no conscious unconscious. There's more a sliding scale, you know, and there's going to be um, some aspect of consciousness in almost anything that is alive, you know, and they're finding that out even with vegetable life forms. They're finding out that a forest is has a um, collective consciousness. Trees can detect when other trees need water through moss in the ground and they can share resources. And this is a neural network of a, of a vegetative uh, kind. Right. So we know this. Mm. Some people would say, that's crap. <laughs> because I don't want to believe that. Because mm-hmm. if I believed that, then I'd have to rethink what forest actually means. And I don't have the time or the inclination to think about that. I've just got to get on with my life. You know, so the, the, the rejection of what consciousness tells us is an, enti- you know, it's an entirely different discussion unto itself. But it, it is sad. And it is problematic for us. Uh, there's not that there's one right answer, but just to constantly reject that which we have come to know. Yeah, and it creates some um, an interesting idea. So you have, like we were just talking about, the forest. It sh- it shares information and makes essentially makes decisions off of you know resources and those sorts of things. And animals make decisions based off of things. So there's there appears to be. Um, I would call that a collective unconsciousness that is almost synonymous with instinct. I call that instinct. You know, animals and plants, they perceive, sen- they re- receive um, information and then they adjust accordingly without conscious thought, at least in the plant aspect. So I guess the the more important question would be, is there a collective or even an individual consciousness consciousness with animals? Are there animals that, um, you know, it's more than instinct. It's something, there's something else going on. They have the ability to um, employ something else. Yeah, see, and, that's, and, there's, and there's where our language is eluding us. But it, it's, it's also partly because we are in an interesting time and we, we're just on the cusp of this. As with so much else, it's a fascinating time in which to live. Well, all times it probably are, but but this in particular, because we are keep we are so there's so many things happening that we are questioning that we that have implications on a planetary scale, and and language we used to think was 
just ours. What makes us human? Language, man, that makes us human. Now we're not quite so sure that that's... Uh, so, gee, if animals are... So then we want to ask the whale, what's it like to be human? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a hard problem indeed. Uh, but if the whale has language, do we have the humility, the capacity for the humility to say, oh my gosh, we may be equals by our current definitions. Do we want to be equal with something else? Well, it seems like we never have. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that that's what, I think that somebody who is willing to accept um, other, you know, animals thinking on that order of some kind is probably more inclined to view humans mechanistically. Because you do, all of a sudden at that point you, you think, oh, well, if this whole time, you can only go one of two ways, which is either these animals have a something else that's outside of the physical, or we humans are just the physical, but we're just a very complex package, but there is nothing else, you know? And I think that that's the way that a lot of people tend to go with it. But a more, an, another aspect of that is artificial intelligence. So I brought up the, the monkey study where they exposed certain neurons to a, uh, a uh, stimulus over and over and over, and they, gradually became better at forming an image of what was happening. That's essentially the definition of artificial intelligence. You, ex, you know, you expose this computer algorithm, a seated algorithm to different stimulus and it draws into focus what's happening. Yes. Now, do you think that there comes a point where you've drawn something into focus well enough that it becomes consciousness? Or do you think it's always just awareness, you know, an, an execution of a programming based off of awareness. Well, I think that all intelligence is artificial, including ours. That doesn't quite answer you, but I have to, I have to, because what is artifice? What, what, Artifice, artifice is uh, something created. Well, whether we say that there's a creator or whether we say there was a process that created us, we're, we're, we're artificial in that sense. Whether blind forces out of <laughs> just happened or, or something created us and just happened. Uh, so I don't, when we say artificial intelligence, I, I find that because I've spent my whole life reading science fiction and enjoying it, I, and, and now we're living in the time where everybody's just throwing the term around uh, and referring to all kinds of things on a, long, a sliding spectrum as artificially intelligent. And it's not like HAL in 2001 yet, thankfully. Uh, but it's, it's scary to me. Not the fact that we're all artificial, but the fact that we, that if we can create something that mimics or better, that functions as our intelligence functions with the capacity to network worldwide, then, then we, then we're, we, we bring into being, uh, that which 
we cannot predict what it will do. And, you know, and all the scenarios that one reads, I mean, it's artificial intelligence is generally not benevolent because our own intelligence is generally not benevolent. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, this, it brings up a lot of different scenarios. You know, there's obviously Stephen Hawking was an ad, you know, a, a vocal opponent of artificial intelligence. And he used, um, you know, Eastern colonization of the Americas, as an example, you know, you had a technologically superior race come in and essentially enslave and dominate the, you know, the host. And people think of the same thing about aliens or artificial intelligence. Or uh, there's a film that just came out. I haven't seen it, um, but the premise is is pretty interesting. Brightburn, which is um, it takes the Superman story, but instead of assuming yeah, that, this, uh... instead of assuming the Superman grows up benevolent. You know, there's a, a very small leap of logic that's needed to assume that a creature that was infinitely more powerful than humans placed on Earth might decide that he should rule the Earth and that he, you know, he, that humans are beneath him the same way ants are beneath us and that sort of thing. And like I said, you know, regardless of the actual execution of the film, I, I'll probably never see it. But the idea of it is fascinating because it is a very small psychological leap. You know, what did what makes Superman good other than, you know, nurture, right? <laughs> the nurtured ethics of of of, of uh, acceptable behavior or something. All right. And, you know, and, and the fact that. But, you know, the nurture, I mean, that's the the premise of the film is that he he grows up essentially the same way. As Superman, but it doesn't and, take. And, we, and <laughs> but yeah, and we've seen it. I've seen it with with other people. You know, pe- kids who are born to the same parents, or kids who I grew up with from the time I was born, and how they turn out, or how I turn out, or all these different things. And there's obviously minuscule differences in nurture. You know, nobody has the exact same experiences. But um, that being said, there's definitely an individual component that contributes to how things turn out. And now you apply that to artificial intelligence. Right, and so you don't know. You don't know how. Well, suppose artificial intelligence. Uh, suppose we we we. I mean, there's there was a marvelous TV show my wife and I enjoyed long after it was done. It's, I mean, it was from a few five years ago or so, um, and it's called Person of Interest. They got two battling artificial intelligences in in that. Well, but let's suppose for instance, science fiction has done this. The artificial intelligence develops. It sees what we do into the world. It sees that the that the best thing for humanity is to be absolutely controlled, and it will tell us how much food we can have, and it will tell us how much water we can use, and it will tell us when we can travel and when we not. Or, or it could just take the next step and say the best thing for humanity is for humanity not to exist. Hmm. The best thing for the world would be for people not to be here. What is supposed to? Do? What if it decides that? For all the reasons that we've programmed into it, <laughs> right? And and I mean. The uh, not the uh, you know it's not the original but it's the most the hallmark the kind of the the genesis of artificial intelligence sci-fi the Hal nine thousand it's based off that same concept you know Hal is programmed to to do one thing it misinterprets a situation and ends up d- killing all the astronauts because it thinks it's doing the right thing you know yeah. because it's it's been heart programmed a different way and I think what these stories and what these postulations about artificial intelligence really reveal about us is the the idea that um 
you know, we like to, we sort of live above the law, even above the natural law as human beings. And as soon as we start to think of something that might be able to hold us responsible, it suddenly becomes abundantly clear that we're not the good guys. Mm. You know, there's... It's more complicated than that. Human nature may not necessarily be a... um, a good thing. We've done extraordinary things. We have done and created and made and, and, and behaved in extraordinary ways uh, in, in, at least in our history and in our, in our own time, people across the planet. But we've also done horrific things and we have to, you know, everybody's always using the word accountability. I'm so tired of the word accountability. First, because of its capitalistic implications. Second, because it tries to reduce everything into data points and, and uh, presumably economic uh, intent. Accountability. To be held to accountability, one hopes, means not to just be held accountable for a certain act, but for the, the lifetime of acts. But we don't often think that way. Okay, so the artificial intelligence would have every reason to hold us accountable. So then we get into an entire science, other science fiction genre where some alien or some uh, 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 puts us on, uh, puts us in court, and looks at our entire history and decides whether or not we are a viable life form. Uh, that's the way we think. We judge all the time. We look at it. Is that viable? No. Kill the fly. Is that viable? No. Get rid of the spider. Is that viable? Well, yes, because I need it. Oh, okay. And, and, and I'm being way too simplistic, but if we can create an artificial intelligence that, uh, that emulates us and what else are we going to do because we don't have any other model, mm. then it'll behave like us. And that creates uneasiness in people, which causes us to re-examine how we treat other things. Yes, it know? should. If, if if it does that much, it's, so it's that a worthy a, topic. That was a really interesting sidebar that kind of brought in a lot of ethics and knowledge and other things. Let's tie it up um, with coming, coming back to consciousness um, more specifically. Let's talk about altered states a little bit. So, you know, the idea of sleep. You know, when you're sleeping or being in a coma or um, on on drugs, what what does this say about consciousness? Or, for instance, when I'm sleeping, am I no longer a conscious being, or am I in an altered state of consciousness? You're in an altered state of consciousness. You're still you're still a conscious being because your mind is still functioning. I would say. Okay. Now. A coma. A coma is a little bit more complicated because lots of times you can look at somebody and say they're brain dead, and then 40 years later they might come out of a coma and they might say that they were aware of things. Now, these cases are are relatively rare. Yeah. We got to say most of the time, if if a doctor says somebody's brain dead, they are in fact brain dead. Yes. They're not coming out. Yes, yeah, so this is very very rare. But there there's been a couple cases. Um, so how are we to determine that they're not outliers? How do we, how do we know that these other people that never do, uh, awaken into consciousness? How do we know that they aren't actually experiencing something? Do we have any way of doing that? I would, uh, to my knowledge, other than the fMRI things, uh, approaches, no, I mean, you can measure electromagnetic activity. You can measure 
heart rate. You can measure, again, it's the machine. You can measure all these things. Uh, what do they entail? We can, we see, well, we can watch an engine work and we learned how to, we made engines, right? But mm. if you want, let's suppose you're watching a machine work that's so much more complicated than we've ever seen before. And we say, well, I wonder what would happen if we turned this off. Right. <laughs> or I wonder what would happen if, or maybe we can't affect it at all. Um, I think, I, no, I don't think we have the answers to that, but it, but it's a, but it's a guide to again ethical behavior. Do we say, well, let's suppose one in ten million uh, is an assist, a, a situation in which there may be uh, an experience going on inside. Do we alter what we do for that one out of the ten million? Do we redefine how we approach things? We don't do that sometimes, and we do it others. If we say that they're prisoners, and then we, we and we accept well, we accept this this statistic that there are eight to ten percent of people that are in prison really or shouldn't be there because they didn't do the crime. We know there've been mistakes, but we find that acceptable as a <laughs> collateral damage. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to stray away from what you're asking, but I, I don't think, again, I don't think we have the language or the tools. Yeah, and, and, and it almost makes me wonder if there's other explanations that haven't been um, considered. And, you know, probably because there's no way of really empirically showing it. But, but, like, think about this, for instance. If lots of people in a coma, there might be something wrong, but there's there's not necessarily something wrong with their sensory organs maybe sound waves still hit the eardrum and it vibrates and the ear bones vibrate and it sends signals and you can see the brain working right or the light is received by the eyes or whatnot but maybe the integ the integration of that information doesn't take place until there is a, a conscious awakening until brain waves come back so maybe all of that information is taken in and being stored and then the people that wake up have these memories but if they were to never wake up, they never had those memories. Maybe somebody's not sitting there experiencing things for 40 years when we think that they're brain dead, you know, and, and we're thinking, oh, my gosh, what all the things that we did or said or all the maybe none of that actually is happening until they're awakened, you know, or something like that. It all it all, you know, I guess the whole point of, of bringing it up is just to kind of get you thinking about the different possibilities and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and what we don't actually for sure know. And also, but the, but the very, even the, the, the language, we privilege this because we say altered states, which suggests that there's a regular state. Right. Well, the regular state is us, of course, being out here active and everything else. So, you know, if, what if there's a culture where everyone's asleep all the time and to be awake and moving is an altered state? Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, that kind of segues a little bit into um, drug use, which is, you know, we we would generally, think, especially with, you know, psychoactive drugs, you know, LSD or mushrooms, things like that, that that would be a an altered state. Somebody who's using them would, is experiencing something outside of regular consciousness. Yes. And, and that's generally true. And what they found is looking at those people, you see increased neuronal activity um there's lots of things happening 
and you know i think a lot of people who are um self-medicating would would say that that's oh that's a good thing like look you're you're increasing your consciousness your awareness you're doing these things but in reality i mean you know autism is is a similar thing so what they what they found is that increased neuronal activity does not necessarily equate with um a healthy functioning of the brain but you know at the same time what they've found in in newer studies is that microdosing people who have extreme anxiety or depression with these things it helps them because the definition of anxiety or you know those sorts of things is getting caught in a feedback loop of negative thoughts so you're only you're you're just going back and forth between this one negative scenario and here's so, the here the mechanistic the so, feedback right. loop. Yeah. so increasing the neuronal activity some opens you up a little bit and you you begin to think and function in a more healthy way so there are you know, there's there's different aspects to them, but I think that that's a good point. Altered states, you know, like that's it. it like you're saying, it implies that there's a normal state, and there's not. Some people, you know, have um, some people have issues with a, a feedback loop of things, and some people have the opposite issue. There's just a overstimulation of, you know, we 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 are living in a time in which we 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 say through our studies and through anecdotal and through experience and through observation that so many children have attention difficulties. And of course we privilege attention or have, and for lots of good reasons, at least good to us. I'm not suggesting a relativistic thing, but we also know physically that the wiring is changing, that the brain condition for kids who have uh, grown up in the, in the generation of the cell phone and the internet, there's been enough time now that the actual interior stuff is slightly different. Uh, which is as much as to say, perhaps, that we are involved, evolving in front of our own eyes. And if that continues, then we're going to be the ones that look uh, altered <laughs> right. to those who find that condition to be standard. Right, this idea of normality really just exists with the, the majority sort of... It's a, it's a useful term sociologically. And I suppose it's a useful term medically because then we can determine, you know, and, and of course there's aberrant behavior and all those kind of things. But, but I think we get way too comfortable with our normality. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, and it's, it's funny cause that's, that's why we have such a hard time describing consciousness. You know, it's this familiar thing. It's something everybody's experienced, but it's something that, we can't really explain and to me that it that's a feedback loop you know we have something i know what it is but i can't explain it so i think about it more and i'm experiencing it consciously but it's not helping then you're you're just going over and over again and it's um it's an interesting yeah the phrase what is it like is not inviting an analogy necessarily Mm -hmm. like we usually think like and as oh it's like this is what is it like means what is it to be Mm -hmm. what is what is it like to be conscious is what is conscious 
Darn. <laughs> Darn. That's a question. And I, I think that, uh, you know, honestly, looking back at the past episodes we've had and how we've talked about it and what we um, tried to cover today, I think that it was a um, it was a pretty big uh, piece to bite off. But I think that we we did it pretty well. We had a good time doing it and it was it was, you know, we accomplished things pretty well. So <laughs> it was certainly delightful. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Question off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.